God is light. This afternoon, I want to encourage you to turn your back on fear, to recognize that you are carrying the light of the world on the inside of you, the light that everyone else can see, the light that every demon trembles at, that is a very gift from God himself. Let light shine out of darkness. My text this afternoon for you, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 through 7. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This afternoon, I want to talk to you about light shining out of darkness, shining perhaps out of your own darkness, shining out of the circumstance and situation that you find yourself in. I'm returning to that theme that I've been dwelling a lot personally on recently, loving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to unpack with us four areas, creative power, conquering power, redemptive power, and revealing power. We trust God that he's going to speak to us in a fresh way this afternoon. I want to extend first, uh, again, a, a vote of gratitude to our senior leader for uh, the privilege of preaching here this afternoon. Now, you might always wonder, why do I take the time at the beginning of every sermon to say thanks to Colin? Well, hopefully you know by now that he's my spiritual father. I've served with him for uh, a decade and a half now. But it's a privilege when we recognize the house that we're in when we recognize the apostolic authority over the house that we are in, that we are honoring God when we honor the leader that he's given to us. And I say that because it's so important that we are careful about how we use our words, how we speak, how we speak about our own home, our own house, how we honor God through our heart and mouth reflections. It's kind of like when you worship God because he's worthy of worship not just because it's a song that you like. When we take the time to orientate our hearts and focus in adoration on the living God, that's a place where revelation breaks in. It's a place where God begins to speak to you. It's so important that we get our heart attitude correct in the area of worship. Do you come in thinking when we get to that right place in the order of songs, I'm then going to lift my hands? Or do you come from the very beginning and say, you know what, I want to lift my hands to the living God? front to the back. Sometimes people hide on the back row. I can see all of you on the back row. Good to see you this afternoon. But some people come and sit on the back row so no one else can see them and just wait. But all of us from front to back, hands in the air, should be our position before the living God. Why? Because he's the one that's worthy of worship. He's the one that's worthy of our praise. And don't worry, I'm sure he's heard the prayer you've been praying for the right partner. He's got the one ready for you. But maybe it's time that we take our hearts and our attention and offer them towards the living God because ultimately that's part of our love towards God. And so the way that we worship and the way that we speak, these are core parts of the way that we let our light shine. And it's a great privilege for me to be able to speak with you today, to speak words of life to you, to honor the work of God in your life. Every single one of us is on a journey towards where God is calling us to be an ever-deepening light a revelation of the light of Christ that is in us. 
That all said, let's get into the Word of God this afternoon with a prayer. Father, thank you for your presence. Lord, thank you that you are revealing to us the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you would speak to our hearts this afternoon. Lord, let the lights go on, so to speak, Father, where people are walking in darkness, where they feel the burden and the weight of sin, where they feel condemnation or guilt. I thank you, Father, that today the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ would begin to shine. Thank you, Lord, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. I thank you that we are in the Spirit because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the fact that we've received you by faith, no longer to walk in the ways of the flesh, but to choose the life of the Spirit in you. And today, Father, free your people that they would be able to walk increasingly with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You all doing okay today? Great to see you. I see you're in strong voice and hungry for the Word of God. Let's look at the context of this passage that I read for us, 2 Corinthians. This is a letter that's written by Paul to the church in Corinth, a church he himself had planted and nurtured and fathered and developed the leaders and sought to put good principles in place so that they could grow in order and serving the Lord as well as flourish in the spiritual gifts. But about five years later, he's finding a need again to write to this church uh, that he himself planted. And he's writing because he's concerned to see that the heart of the church that he loves and is still apostolic leader for is guarded. So important that we guard our hearts because out of the overflow of our hearts is the things of life. And what was happening for this church that Paul cared so dearly about is that they were being seduced. In the time that Paul had been separated from them, they were receiving some superstar guest speakers. These guys looked like they had, metaphorically speaking, stepped off the cover of GQ right into the services that they were preaching at. They were wearing their Ted Baker jackets, had a 150-pound haircut, looked real sweet, nicely styled and shaped. Their Gucci shoes traveled in by the finest camel or donkey that they could hire and pretended that it was received by faith. Their message was, you too can experience the blessing of God like I have. When you put on the outer external appearance like I have, then you can experience the glory of God. And this was in sharp contrast to Paul. These super apostles were trying to teach Paul's own church to despise him. Why? Because they would look at Paul and they'd say this, he has suffered so much. Can he really be the one representing the resurrected Lord Jesus? I mean, look at him. He's been in prison. He's been slandered. He's caused church splits. He's been judgmental of others and legalistic about their own walk. He's been alienated, cut off from the Judaism that he previously followed. He's been stoned. He's caused riots. What kind of an example of the risen Lord Jesus is this? And if you didn't know this, he also looks a bit funny. Paul had a problem. They, uh, some think that he had a problem with his eyes. Others think that he had a problem with a, a hunch. Others think that he had a big nose. But whatever it was, they thought he looked funny. Have you ever felt a little bit like Paul? Not the looking funny bit, but the suffering bit. These apostles were looking down on Paul because of his suffering. 
Maybe you're looking at your story, your life journey, where you are right now, and maybe you've been walking with the Lord for many years, but you still say, Lord, where is my, my testimony? I'm ashamed that every time I'm talking to a friend, it's about a problem. Every time I'm trying to look after my own circumstances, I find myself in debt. I'm ashamed that I have to ask people for money. I'm ashamed that I don't always have a roof over my own head. I've been suffering. I've been struggling. Feels like a great darkness when we walk through such suffering. But the Lord says that His light is going to shine through you. And I want to encourage you this afternoon. You might think that you've got no testimony. You might think, hey, I'm struggling. I'm just trying to keep my head above the water. Am I still even saved? But you're still here. You're still standing by the grace of God. And you know there's a trust and reliance that God is cultivating in you as you walk through this situation by faith that is going to put that amazing, glorious image that these false apostles, these accusers around you to shame. You see, what was happening in the church is something that can happen to all of us. The seductive appeal of a super clean, super squeaky, attractive presentation that wins people over. This, these apostles looked amazing. They looked a bit and they had the power, especially when it came to the preaching. But what was happening in the church represented a shift away from the spirituality that the Holy Spirit was calling them to. Because the church that had been fathered by Paul now started to cultivate an attitude of judgmentalism towards him themselves. Who is this Paul, this funny-looking, riot-starting, suffering apostle? We hear he's even making tents. These guys don't have to make tents. We hear he's even asking us for money. Things must be bad for the Apostle Paul. And suddenly they've come to this place where their heart was growing cold towards him. And very interestingly, Paul doesn't defend himself, or at least not in the way that we would think that he does. And oftentimes Paul is accused in his letters of defending himself. But very interestingly, in this particular passage, he doesn't say, do you know who I am? He says, I love the fact that I'm suffering. I love the fact that I'm going through it. I love the fact that I'm challenged. I love the fact that I've been struggling. Why? Because then you know that it's not about me. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't appeal to his own power or position. He appeals to the cross of Jesus. And in fact, that's the best place to start. He was acutely aware of his own humanity. Have you ever come into church and you've been acutely aware of your own humanity? You're nervous. You think you're worried about what people are going to say when you say something to them. You want to put on the best presentation you can in that moment of first interaction. You try and avoid the people you've had difficult conversations with in the past, and you hope that you don't come across that holy person, you know, the person that acts like they can look into your very soul and see sin and see what you've been doing just before you came to church. We can be so aware of our own humanity but I want to encourage you to remember that our humanity is now caught up in His glory. 
There's a richness that you can carry when you walk in relationship with the living God when you know what it is to trust Him. You might see other people around you. They look good. They look like they got it all under control. They got the part. And it's possible to, for people to be in church but to be using the gospel for their own gain, be it monetary, be it to appear powerful, be it to control people, be it to dictate somebody's destiny. It can be a very seductive thing to be someone in that level of power. There's something I love about coming to this church. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed it. We love to do things well here in Kensington Temple, but at the same time, there's a lovely, homely, worn feeling in this church. Do you get it? The floors are scuffed from the thousands of people that walk through here. The chairs have got chewing gum stuck on the underside of them. Uh, there's bits that need painting and repainting and repainting again and repainting on the front. We aren't a show home. We're a family home. And it'd be great for us to be able to invest and repaint. And I'm sure it's going to come around soon because some of you who've been leaning against the walls have left uh, some hair product, shall we call it. <laughs> on the side. <laughs> but you see, when we're acutely aware of our humanity, we can be like Paul in saying, it's not about me. <laughs> it's about the one who I've come here to worship. It's not about me. It's about the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this wonderful message. Those who recognize their frail humanity are the ones who are standing under the very power of the gospel themselves. And if we can experience the same humanity that Paul claims to, then we can also experience the same ministry that he was entrusted with. I want to challenge you once again to become a person that is awakened to the call of God on your life to preach the gospel. You are all light carriers. That's what the gospel is about, that the light of God in simple terms has come to dwell on the inside of us. And everywhere we go, God goes. And everywhere we go, God can be revealed. You know, there is light inside of you that is causing your mom and dad to say, hey, uh, we know you, we grew you, we had to feed you, but something has changed in you and we don't quite know what. Your brothers and sisters, they get awkward when you start to mention Jesus because they're sensitive to the fact that there's light in your life. Your work colleagues are having an internal conversation saying there must be something different about them. There must be something fresh about that person. What is it? Now, this is not a let that light shine and then figure it out message. Paul said this, we proclaim that which we know, the light of God has been placed on the inside of us. Don't leave your friends, your family, your work colleagues guessing because they'll just make their own assumptions. Let them know, hey, just in case you thought I was different, it's because Jesus is shining through me. And then they look at you and they say, I didn't think you were different. Well, then you get on your knees and you say, Lord, shine through me. <laughs> what is going on in me? Shine through me. But whatever it is, we believe that there is a powerful message in this text for you today. Let his light shine out of darkness. The core message that I want to get across to you is align with God's power flowing through you. Align with God's power flowing through you. His light is the one that is being placed in you. Let it shine through you. And so I want to talk to four areas of the power of God operating in your life. We take these from this text, want to jump around a little bit and pull out some of the riches that are available here. 
In verse 6, it said, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The creation is in the top two or three miracles that have ever happened. I mean, if you think about the sheer power of nothingness, not like the scientists would say there was something, it was some form of structure or substance that was at a uh, minimal level that became, but literal nothingness, zero, but God. And him speaking, let there be light, and suddenly everything come into creation. This is one of the most challenged, contested testimonies in the Bible today, particularly if you come from a scientific, naturalistic worldview. But right at the core of this important text to us today is this. God is the one who said, let light shine out of darkness. In God's creative declaration, everything that we know around us came to be. Let there be light, and there was light, as Genesis 1-3 says. But it's not just a generic light. It's not a light just shining randomly throughout the universe. In John 1, verse 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Speaking of Jesus, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This light that God created has something of a centricity. It's focused towards humanity. And I know that we can make the entirety of creation too much about us as mankind, but we have to recognize that there is a special place that God has given us within the context of his creation. And this light is for men. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what I draw out of that is this, that God created everything around us. There is nothing that was created except that Jesus created it, but it was created with a purpose. What about you today? Do you know that you are created by the living God? I know there's all sorts of complexities around this because, you know, what if you were an unintentional child? What if your parents hadn't dreamt about you? What if you know someone or yourself are the product of rape? How can we say things like God intended, God purposed, God desired. God has a plan for you personally, particularly. Well, we have to come back to the big picture here that God created all things and there is nothing that was created except by his permission. So whatever your perceived origins or real origins, God intended for you to be. And not just any be, you be great semantics there. But what I mean by that is you personally are created by God. And whenever we war against that, I wish I was someone else. I wish I was this. I wish I was that. I wish I looked like that person, dressed like that person, had the same employment as that person, had the same family as that person, looked like them, spoke like them, thought like them. We deny the very creation fact of your existence, that God made you the way that you are. 
hey, but you know, Gabriel, you, you don't know me. Uh, you don't know the mess that is my life. And <laughs> I know that if my messed up life can be turned around, your messed up life can be turned around. Because this isn't just about the initial creation power of the living God. The second piece that we need to turn to is the conquering power of Jesus, which gets particularized in a moment in the redemptive power of Christ. What conquering power are we talking about? It says, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, um, and uh, that the glory of God would be revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. I said that perhaps one of the top three miracles was the, the uh, creation. And it is really a substantial miracle. I mean, everything that we see and can imagine and all that there is and science is still showing us exists in the world that God has created. The second might be this one, or the most important, sorry, might be this one, is the incarnation. You might say the resurrection, we'll come to that in just a second, but the incarnation, why is this a miracle? This is a miracle because God himself joins with our nature as humanity. He becomes a man. He adds to his nature, mankind's nature. In this miraculous moment, we have the bringing together of God and mankind. In this miraculous moment, a joining together, a unifying of heaven and earth happens in a way that's going to be fully realized in the future, but we can look back to this point when God himself walked the earth. But he did so fully as a man. He lived a holy life. The significance of the holy life of Jesus is that in his humanity, he never sinned. He never fell short in the same way that we have fallen short. Then we turn to the core of the gospel that this holy one who had proclaimed God and done amazing things had to go to a cross to die for us. You might be coming from a tradition today where the cross is common, where you see the cross and your Catholic crucifixes and remember it in that kind of a context. Or you might be from another context where the cross is a mythical fragment of people's imaginations. And yet, the historical documents of the Gospels tell us all unanimously that Jesus Christ was arrested, tried, put to death upon a cross and died publicly in front of the law courts, the Jewish priests, the Roman soldiers, his own disciples, his own mum. Jesus died on the cross. From a historical accuracy point of view, that can't be contested. It can be denied because we don't like it, but it can't be contested from a historical point of view. And more than that, the core of the gospel, that Jesus rose again on the third day. Now, I spend a little bit of time here because these are the core elements that we have to spend our time dwelling on. Jesus, how could you take my place, His holiness? Jesus, how did you take my place? The cross. The death that we deserved, He took for us. Jesus, how do you make it possible for me not to have to experience the same cross, the resurrection. We've got to spend time thinking about these and dwelling on these and being challenged by them to the place where we grow to love them. Because the gospel is 
as much as it is about praying to God, that's not the gospel. As much as it includes the fact that we can have a relationship with God, yes, part of it, but it's not the core of it. The core of it is that Jesus died on the cross for us, that Jesus was raised on the dead, from the dead on the third day. That's the bit that we've got to deal with, and it will be uncomfortable because if you think about it, the fact that Jesus had to do that for us points to the fact that we got sin. Sin is one of those things that no one wants to own. Sin is what links back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about how we can understand that God created particularly us. Because all of us are born in the context of sin. There is not one of us that are born in a perfect scenario. Not one. If you, if you dreamed or wished that we were, you want to live on a different planet, in a different universe, because this universe is broken by sin. So that place is where we focus our attention and grow to love the gospel because of the power of God's love that is revealed there. Jesus said, greater love has no man in this than that he lay down his life for his friends. But in this moment, it's difficult language. It's hard for us to access. But when we get hold of it, we realize that there's something glorious that's being revealed here at the cross. Now, the Bible talks about the law being a good thing. We think of the law as being a bad thing because we think, oh, is it, you're telling me that I shouldn't do this or that, I shouldn't sin, I shouldn't uh, sleep around, I shouldn't get wasted, I do all of these things, oh, the law, 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 new Christians, all you're about is the things that you're not supposed to do. No, the law is a good thing because it shows us the holiness of God. It shows us who it is that we're worshipping. We're not just worshipping some uh, man that has uh, odd tendencies, particular tendencies. We're worshipping a holy God. But this holy law, this glorious law, is at the same time that which condemns us. But here at the cross, we see something more glorious revealed. Let me break it down for you like this. Colossians 2 verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that has stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. There's a glory of holiness that's revealed by the law. It shows how holy God is, but the cross shows us the power of God to redeem. Why? Because this text tells us this, that every single sin that you ever committed, the whole long list, Let's not lie, every single person here probably has a 20,000-page document of list, long list of sin in your life. But however thick that document is, Jesus took that document, for you personally particularly, and it was nailed to the cross in Jesus Christ. And it says that the record of debt was cancelled. Record of debt was cancelled. Now, this is a very silly example, but let me take it. I have a dissertation due because I'm finishing up my master's. Now, that dissertation due date is a debt date for me. <laughs> it's the day when I pay my debt, right? Um, and it's a painful debt to be paying because it's many, many late nights and thousands of pages of work read and all of this kind of stuff. But it's pressure, I get agitated just sitting there. I'm sure for those of you that are writing papers, you can empathize. 
sitting there just trying to think. I get confused. My mind starts to wonder. I want to watch TV. I want to do whatever I can do apart from doing that. But I know that this debt is coming. And I know that that day, the closer and closer it gets, the more and more anxious I get. Because I know that come the day is going to be demanded. And it's a pass or a fail. Now, it's a silly illustration, but when we live outside of Christ, you can sin and do as much as you want and have as much fun as you want, but there's a day coming, and there's a day coming a bit closer, and it's coming a bit closer, and it's coming a bit closer, and then the pressure starts to build, and the tension starts to build, and we begin to realize, hey, that debt is going to be paid, and I have no idea how I'm going to make the payment. Being a Christian means that that payment date has been canceled. Literally, the day when God is going to call time on your sin has been canceled, and that is about the most scary thing any one of us could ever experience, because what do we do? The whole of religious life is built on you pay your debt, you pay your debt, you pay your debt. Every single day you pay your debt, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is built on your debt is paid, your debt is paid, your debt is paid. Let's build that, because I don't think you're quite there yet, and maybe we'll, we'll get there in just a moment, but. Every single sin, that's past sin, present sin, future sin. You still have to deal with your sin before God because you call to have a relationship with Him. You know, if I shout at Rebecca one night, I can't expect to get up the next day and be like, hey, sweetheart, you're good? She'll, she'll just ignore me until I've apologized and then we will really late again, right? Because it's about relationship with God. But this is not about, oh, we can go sin however we want. We recognize that sin has been forgiven and we keep our relationship by dealing with the outstanding issues that we have with God. Okay, that point made. But more than that, he has set aside the legal demands, nailing them to the cross in Christ Jesus. And much more than that, this last line. And if you feel like the devil chasing you, I know you know it's a trick question, and I know that's why you're not sticking up your hand. <laughs> but some people freak out about the devil chasing them. They think that the devil has some right to chase them. And the thing that this passage tells us is this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, every single power, every single principality had to bow its knee to the name of Jesus Christ. And every single claim that that power had against you was cancelled. The great thing that you can do as a Christian is whenever the devil turns around to chase you, you say, hey, hey, there was, a, there was a, a, someone I hadn't seen for a while in the church earlier on. They were stood in the middle on their own. So I was like, hey. <laughs> yes, you. Hey. Right? But when the devil comes along, it's like, hey, you know what? I got a debt to collect from you. You say, who? Huh? I don't know who you're talking about. That one that you're trying to come debt collect from, that one's dead. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. That one that wants to take a debt from me, you're going to have to go talk to my boss, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's give him a big praise. But you see, this is the conquering power. Jesus' work on the cross has put every power and principality to shame, generally speaking. But then that's particularized when we come into a knowledge of his personal redemptive power says here that that light has shone in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. 
There is this great and amazing message all over the world, but it becomes a particularized, personalized light shining in our heart when we come to know His goodness in us. And I don't know if you have followed that stream of thinking about being embarrassed perhaps of coming to church, being worried about all the people around you, being worried about someone seeing the sin in your life. Maybe you're wrestling with things that control you. Maybe you're wrestling with issues that you don't know how to be free from. And all you can see is the darkness in your own heart. And yet God himself has proclaimed, let light shine out of that darkness. Now, if I could just be honest with you for a bit, I like being honest, but I, don't, I shouldn't keep talking about my family or my parents or whatever because they get upset with me. Let me talk about me. I have an addictive personality. I don't know if you have a problem in the same way or maybe a different kind of a problem, but I have an addictive personality. So whatever it is that I start to do, I know I'm going to keep doing. So when I was a kid, I got into basketball. Um, and we got so into basketball that I convinced my mom that she had to put a ring outside our house. And so every day, me and my brother would pray, play for two hours every single day. I got to that short on dunking. I could grab the ring, could get the ball over. I just couldn't throw it down. I was athletic one, at one point in time. That was a full-size 10-foot ring, okay, for those of you that are thinking. Um, I was playing with a little kiddie basketball ring. But, um, you know, I would play basketball addictively. Like, it was two hours every single day. But then it was computer games. Like, my dad, in Hong Kong, when you grow up in Hong Kong, they do dodgy stuff, right? So he came home with the Sega Mega Drive, but then he came home with this unit you could stick underneath, and then he had a, a disc with 10,000 games on it. That's the dodgy stuff, right? So you don't pay for the games. You, get, you stick that card in, you got access to 10,000. So hours and hours and hours of <laughs> computer game playing. Uh, <laughs> these are tame examples, but the addictive personality became a problem when I got into alcohol. It became a problem when I got into violence. It became a problem when I got into certain patterns of speech, and so I used to blaspheme God all the time and so on. That addictive personality, everything that I took up, it became a controlling behavior. And I would always say to myself, just this once. Just this once on the drinking. Just this once on swearing. Just this once on fighting. Just this once on sitting down to play some video games. Just this once. And the problem was when I became a Christian, I tried to carry on the just this once. Just this once, Lord, you'll understand. Just this once, Lord, I'm, sorry, I'm sure that I can't be holy. I can't be perfect straight off the bat. Seriously, you just have to put up with it. Just this once, I missed my Bible reading. Just this once, I swore. Just this once, I wanted to knock somebody out. Just this once, you know, all of these things that were just this once until I came to the place that I realized I had to change just this once for just this one that my life had to become orientated around God. And it wasn't about my own satisfaction and my own desire to see things fulfilled, but the one who I was living for. And I'd say, God, just for you, just this one, let me start to walk in purity in different areas of my life for you, God. Let me start to honor people with the way I speak to them for you, God. Let me start to serve in the house for you, God, because that transition from just this once to just this one is the power of choice for us to realize that we are called to walk in the power of the gospel. It's not a shame to say that you've been freed from an addiction. You know, when someone says, oh, you Christians, uh, you don't drink, 
well, I do have a beer now and then. Don't worry, I'm still saved. (laughs) But what I know is that I'm not addicted to alcohol anymore. But there are people that come and say, ah, you Christians, you don't drink anymore, you're crazy, there's so much fun to have in London. I say, well, you know what? I might be crazy, but I'm free. I might be crazy, but I'm not bound up. I know if I was in your shoes, I'd be still drunk. If I was in your shoes, I'd probably start a fight with that guy because he's looking at me funny. But I'm free now. My friend sat down with me. I haven't seen this friend in 18 years. He said, I want to spend some time with you because you're the only one that's doing anything different out of all of our friends at school. What happened to you? I want to know. For you at one time were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Finally, the revealing power. The scripture says, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This verse speaks in the context of Paul saying, I'm just a jar of clay. I'm just a jar of clay. What that means is that he knows, like we all know, that I've been sharing with you is that we're human. There's nothing for us to boast about. We got so much stuff that goes wrong with us and in our decision making. But it's strange when you put it in the context of power because the scripture is talking about a glory and majesty that is being revealed in us. Let the light shine out of the darkness. Let the light shine out of you. What an incredible statement when you really drill down to it. Maybe this incredible statement is made most plain by the New Living Translation of this same passage that I've read. In verse 7, this makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Something has so happened to you that there is power on the inside of you. Something so happened to you that your existence is permanently changed because God himself is living on the inside of you. Have you seen those YouTube clips where people say, are we afraid that we're not going to make it? Are we afraid that we're terrible? No, we're afraid that we are powerful beyond measure. It's a great uh, tell on the story. But the point is this, that power is in you. And you can do one thing. You could go crazy, run around and say, hey, look at me. You could do what the super apostles were doing. Look how amazing we are. You can put a great gloss on it. And in so doing, mar the power. This is why so many people struggle when they're around their friends because they're like, hey, you know, I'm trying to look good, but I know I've failed. And I'm scared that you're going to see the real. That's why I've tried to put out for you straight at the beginning, be real. Be real. I'm trying to be real with you about my life. I don't know if you've ever been real with someone in your own life about the state of your life. Be real but recognize in the middle of that reality, there is a power that is shining through you. It's the glory of the living God. Amen. But how do we do it? How do we do it? It requires humility. Now, there is such a thing as false humility. There are those people that, oh, it's not me. It's all God. Thank you. You They do that whole acting show and they pretend. But you know when someone's falsely humble because they don't serve when no one's looking. When you spot them when they're just walking through somewhere, 
They're like, oh. man of God, man of woman of power for the hour today. But you see, humility is when no one is looking, what are you doing? Humility is knowing that you are a child of the living God. That's the correct estimation. You have been made new in Christ Jesus. But the correct imitation is this, to serve like Jesus served. And in that context, the light shines. When you are fundamentally real about your humanity, but compassionately revealing Christ, people begin to see that light shining through you. That's who we're called to be. We're called to be people that understand the creative power of God, that he created all that is around us, that he has conquered those sin that so easily breaks us, and he has redeemed us so that we can genuinely say, God created me for a purpose. What the devil meant for good, for bad, devil meant nothing for good. What the devil meant for bad, God has turned for good. What situations and circumstances were a mess, God is ordering. Why? Because in the middle of the ordering, he receives the greatest glory. When he sets your life in order, when he puts you on the right foundation in him, he's showing his glory. Please, if you are still at the end of this message, the type of person that goes away feeling guilt-laden, let me tell you, the greatest glory for you is that Jesus is going to help you through your sin. Jesus is going to help you overcome that sin. Jesus is going to help you walk a new life in Christ Jesus. But then finally, to become a person who reveals his power. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. Yes, it's God's power, but it's released through us. Why? So that people around us can come to know the glory of God themselves. Let's pray. Father, I pray this afternoon, Lord, for a revelation that comes by the Spirit to each person. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that right now that the light would begin to shine in the darkness, in the darkness of addiction, in the darkness of poor self-esteem, in the darkness of depression, in the darkness of suicidal thoughts, in the darkness of addiction, in the darkness of broken relationship, in the darkness of deep shame, right into the middle of those darknesses, let the light of God shine in the darkness. And Lord, I thank you that your people would awaken to the conquering power of Jesus Christ that every sin has been nailed to the cross in Christ Jesus. Every power has been shamed publicly because of what you did at the cross for them, Jesus. And it would become a personalized, particularized light shining in our hearts that we would know the glory of the risen Father. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would begin to raise up a people that have been purified in their life, not by their own works, but by the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A people that are free to align with your power that the light would shine through them and the people around them would begin to see. And more than beginning to see, they would begin to hear because our lives proclaim in every way, both through how we live and how we speak, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ.